Hey folks, this is Nat Kendall Taylor. I'm the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, and you're listening to our podcast, Frames of Mind. When it comes to social issues, experts say one thing, the public hears another. We use social science and the science of framing to bridge that gap. You'll hear a member of our staff, or in some cases, a few very special guests chat about social science and social issues all through the lens of framing, exploring how it can shape our understanding of the world, or at the very least, how we talk about it. Why do you think that some people have more difficult lives than others? Some people make their lives more difficult by the decisions that they make. Individual choices. Uh, The amount of work that you put in, I think. Effort, motivation. Some people, I think, make their own trouble. People don't understand mostly is that what you do now affects later. Everybody has the option to change their destiny and you, you have the power to have it better. People have to help themselves. Life's hard, it's supposed to be hard. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There's been people that have come from absolutely nothing to make it in whatever society's eyes deem success. I just think it's all choices. I mean, really and truly, it's, mm, I just think it's a choice. Life outcomes. Is it really a matter of choice? What makes us think this way? And how is it possible that individual people interviewed in different locations and regions can all essentially say the same thing? Anthropologists say it's culture. I'm your host, April Callan, and in the first episode of Frames of Mind, Framework CEO Nat Kendall-Taylor sits down with Brad Shore, professor of anthropology at Emory University. Dr. Shore is one of the pioneers of cultural models theory, which is the foundation of our work. But first, we talked to sociologist Maura O'Neill, who is the director of research interpretation and application at Frameworks, and anthropologist and senior fellow Eric Lindland to unpack the question, how does social science explain our thinking on social issues? So Eric, cultural models theory, what is that exactly? Well, cultural models um, theory is uh, a literature and a body of theory that really kind of emerged in anthropology and specifically in the subdiscipline of psychological anthropology Uh, really starting in the 1980s. And it was really an effort on the part of a set of of relatively senior scholars to to figure out a way to kind of develop a shared framework that anthropologists could use to talk about culture and not just simply culture kind of writ large, like, you know, we, we can talk about American culture or French culture or, uh, or what have you, but, to figure out a way to talk in a meaningful and shared way about the units of culture, um, which is something that anthropology had been struggling to do in some respects for, for years. Um, there had been different ways to think and talk about culture. Um, and so cultural models really emerged um, as a way to address that, that challenge. Um, and I had the good fortune um, of working with kind of one of the senior founding figures in cultural models theory, um, uh, professor emeritus, now emeritus at Emory University called Brad Shore, um, who helped kind of shape that, that, that framework, um, in conversation with others. Um, and I think the cultural models perspective has, has found a home, um, a really well-established home in psychological anthropology and in cultural anthropology more broadly, I think in part because, it provides a way to think about and talk about 
both the ways in which culture plays a role in structuring human thought and cognition, as well as thinking and talking about kind of the, the culture that we experience on a daily basis out in the world, right? Um, and, and the nice thing about the idea of models and cultural models is, you know, a model is a fairly kind of open term. Um, and um, a lot of things can be thought of in terms of, of, of a model, right? Um, Brad used to always tell, say to me that, you know, he thinks of, of humans as kind of model makers par excellence. We, we as we experience um, the social worlds that we inhabit and these various systems that we're a part of, whether they're educational systems or communication systems or religious systems or moral systems or language systems, right? We are experiencing um, um, those systems in a way that ultimately kind of come to cohere in how we think about and experience the world, ultimately how we model the world. And what are some examples of cultural models? Um, well, I we tend to see... Um, a, a really high level of fatalism okay. um, when when people are thinking about really tough, um, complex social problems, um, and people there. It's not that they don't care, and it's not that they don't get upset, and it's not that they don't, you know, aren't engaged. But they really are at a loss about what what do we do? Where do we go from here? This is something that has been with us since the beginning of time. How are we ever going to solve it? So you see that on things like climate change. You see it on uh, things like um, uh, problems with the criminal justice system, where you, you get a lot of support for reforms for the criminal justice system, but, but the idea that we can do anything to fix it is really not there. And I think that what we have found on various projects that the counter to that is, is um, the idea that we, as Americans, if that's the group that you're, you're calling, um, we get things done. We know how to do things. We are an ingenious people. We, we are problem solvers. And so that idea of, yes, we can, si se puede, you know, you see how powerful that's been in other movements. And so where people can be incredibly fatalistic about problems, if you remind them, hey, we've, we've tackled really tough things in the past and we can do it again, that you're, again, you're just, you're shifting the salience of those two models about, uh, you know, sort of what can be done to solve, solve really tough social problems. With cultural models, there's this idea that we as a people or as a society share a culture. Um, but that doesn't seem to fully fit in with other areas of our society where we're often divided by race or class, even location, geography. So can you say a little more about that? As, as Americans, um, there are certainly ways in which um, people live different lives uh, and have different experiences. Um, but there are a lot of ways in which we participate in common institutions um, and um, across our society, right? Whether it's in terms of uh, religious institutions or educational institutions or recreational or media environments um, and um, or capitalism um, uh, or our democracy and, and, and the structure of, of, 
of how life is governed at the local level and the state level and the national level, right? We, we, we do participate in, in a lot of common systems and institutions. And, um, and because of that, um, we come to see and understand and think about the world in ways that are comparable um, across class and race and gender and ur the urban-rural distinction and, and a variety of other ways in which people do live, in some respects, um, somewhat separate lives. And so, um, and, and this is, I think, particularly true when we look at some of the, what we would call foundational models that have historically and continue to structure life in the United States. Like, what's an example of that? Well, you know, the, the, the kind of most readily available uh, example of that is individualism, right? Okay. And, um, you know, within the Western tradition, and there's, of course, a long history to how we Westerners became such individualists, um, but the reality is, is we all, in some way, shape, or form, um, have participated in highly personalized, individual, individualized, why, individualized ways of, of experiencing the world and thinking about the world. Um, and, and, and so because of that, um, almost irrespective of who you're talking to in this country, um, if you have a long enough conversation with them, um, that kind of more individualist way of thinking about the world and how we uh, as humans operate in it is going to come forward as, as, as a way that in some way, shape or form structures how a person thinks. Um, I certainly know it's part of my thinking, even as much as I try to think in collectivist and systemic terms. Um, so it's really at some of those deeper levels of culture that we can see um, some of these foundational models are really operative um, across those populations. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't at any level meaningful differences across populations, because there certainly are. But really, when you, when you take a deep dive, generally speaking, in most areas on most issues, you're going to find some common patterns. And I mean, you know, at Frameworks, I think we, we have joked, uh, though it's not really a joke, that, you know, this individualist challenge is pervasive across almost all of the social, certainly, areas where we do research. So in education, education climate change, criminal justice reform, um, early childhood, aging, aging, human services. Yeah, I mean, we want to get the list of research issues. And we, we, could, we could give you the flavor of individualism that structures thinking on that issue issue area. And when you say flavor of individualism, meaning that? So, for example, if, you know, we know that individualism really structures people thinking about um, aging outcomes. And so there, um, people will say things like, you know, if you're doing well older in life, it's because you saved enough money to retire well, you took good care of yourself, you had the right diet, you had the right exercise, you did everything right, you made the right choices. And now you're living this, you know, this fabulous life uh, later, you know, in your 80s. And if you aren't having those experiences, it's because you didn't make the right decisions. And so everything that surrounds 
or has surrounded that person through the life course disappears from view. And it is all about the decisions that that person made. You take that into the context of education. Um, if, if a student is doing well, it's because they work hard, they make good choices. Um, they, they do what they need to do to, to get a good education and the learning environment, the quality of the learning environment, it's inconsequential. It's all about that, that student's sort of inner drive. So it sort of sounds like a bootstraps thinking. Yeah. And it's sort of the way we've been talking about models. It seems that they often have sort of a negative connotation. Is there a model that you can think of that might be positive that comes up in a particular social issue? I mean, I think the it's all relative to the goals of the people that we're working with. Uh, so you could imagine, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, um, that individuals are responsible for their own outcomes might be really helpful for someone who's trying to sell something, right? That model might be positive or productive in that context. Um, I think the ones that we see sometimes are very thin, they're very shallow, um, but the, the idea that environments matter, people will say things like it takes a village, you know, really cliched, but there's something positive there about what surrounds us, shapes us, that it really is at the heart of, of the things that many of the people that we're working with are trying to communicate. Um, so I, we tend to talk about it as productive and unproductive models rather than positive or negative, because is it is that model doing the work that you need it to do in order to get people to engage your, in, with your issue, understand your issue and sort of mobilize them to do something? And the, the other the other side of this is um, it's important to recognize that people oftentimes have kind of multiple ways of thinking about an issue available to them, which is to say, they have multiple models in mind, you know, and so someone, for example, who may have available to them and actually um, a, a quite strong pattern of thinking that is, let's say, negative about government, right? You know, get government off our backs. Government is a is an inefficient, uh, corrupt, uh, intrusive thing, right? Which is we know a model that has some currency uh, in our culture and in our discourse. But that same person uh, may have um, a much a productive model of government in mind too, right? That recognizes government's role as a protector, government's role um, as at times a provider of certain kinds of key services and infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, part of what we're trying to do here is, you know, avoid the trap of thinking that people have one way of thinking about things. Um, on, on most issues where we do work, people have multiple available ways of thinking about things. And so, um, you know, generally there, there is good stuff there that we can seek to strengthen and to activate and to really bring forward and elevate um, as, as a way to think about something. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the work we do is really aimed at at that, of how can we um, take some of the good content, the good ways of thinking about things that are there, and um, and develop strategies that kind of bring them to the fore and give them give them more salience um, and and the right kind of of um, the right kind of role in people's thinking. So, what type of question would you ask someone to get them to that model or that way of thinking? Right. Well, so to identify 
models. Um, and this really kind of goes to our, uh, our approach as researchers. Um, you know, uh, we, so our, our general methodology is we, we, have, we have a bunch of different methods that we bring to bear, but one of the early ones that we often do, we call, uh, not surprisingly, cultural models interviews. And these are in-depth, one-on-one, oftentimes two-hour interviews that are kind of structured, which is to say we have an interview guide in front of us, but we also make them really conversational because we want people to basically take their thinking where they want to take their thinking and we don't want to get in their way. Right. And, and we, we generally, uh, we try to start those, those, those interviews and spend the first as much time as we can asking some really open, broad questions again, just to kind of see, you know, where do people go, um, without kind of predetermining, um, things and, and that's a really instructive process, you know? So, you know, I mean, the most open version of a question like that would be, I mean, imagine we sit down and you have no idea what we're going to talk about. And I say something like, you know, let's talk about children. You know, when I say, when I say children, what do you think about? Loud. Okay. All right. So we have an auditory model of childhood uh, okay. that is coming to the fore here. Uh, tell me more. Tell me more, April. Mm, messy. Okay. Their right. little and, noses. <laughs> okay. Okay. And 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 um, and uh, you know, why 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 do you think that is? You can see where we're going here, yes. right? So I will no impulse control. I, will do, I don't. Know. <laughs> I will do my best to just keep you talking okay. without telling you anything. In a sense, right? Tell me more. Tell me more. And I mean, it's it's a tried and true method. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like we've we've invented the wheel here. But, but there's a lot of power there in just letting people, people free associate and speak their truth, right? Um, and of course, there's much more to the process than that. But that's, that's one of the ways we try to get to, to those models. So this might be sort of where you're merging our partner needs with the public sort of understanding or what we want their understanding of a particular issue to be. I mean, I think at that point, I mean, the cultural models interview process gives us a map of how people are thinking. And, and as Eric said, we're, we're really trying to let them go where they're going to go and not get in their way. And we're not really thinking about how to effectively frame the issue in that context. Then when we have the map of how people are thinking about the issue and we can sort of map that against what it is that our partners want to communicate then we can see where those gaps are and then start to develop hypotheses about what might be an effective framing strategy to bridge those gaps. And, and that's when we get to our more prescriptive research where we're, we, we develop um, and test framing strategies um, in, in various ways in both quantitative, large-scale um, experimental surveys and through other kinds of qualitative methods as well. So, Maura, how do you explain that concept to advocates? Um, the concept of cultural models. Yeah, that you're pretty much introducing this new way of thinking about communications. And I would imagine that can be well-received or not sometimes. I mean, I think just it, what's really exciting is that when we're able to do this work and sort of map that really complex ecosystem of the models people are using, um, it's just really exciting to share that with the people we're working with and to have people just have the moment of, of recognition of, of 
how beautifully complex human cognition is. I think sometimes we, all of us get stuck in the idea that people think this way, or they are this type of person, or this is their worldview, when rather it is, it is so context dependent, it is so variable, it is, um, it's patterned, um, but just infinitely complex that you can have people drawing on two models that seem not internally coherent or consistent, but that's what they're using to make meaning of something in front of them. That's what we all do. Um, it's just exciting um, to have people, I think, think really deeply about human cognition. Um, so I want to go back to the piece about sharing culture. So when you are giving these presentations or in workshops more, like how do advocates respond to that idea? I mean, I think sometimes it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing um, to, to think about. I think because people are different, you know, we are, we live in a society characterized by incredible degrees of, of inequality, which, you know, shapes how we live. Um, and, and so I think really sort of unpacking what we mean when we say culture um, is, is really important. Um, and to really make the case that we are not arguing when we're talking about common models that all people think the same, but rather these are models that are available to people um, to make sense of incoming information. And there may be maybe differences in the salience of the model, depending on where people are. So people who have been historically marginalized um, by inequitable systems might be much easier for them to think about how systems, you know, determine outcomes. Um, but that 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 they are there um, because we participate in these common institutions. Um, and so really making that point that we don't say all Americans are the same. We don't say they all think the same, but there are patterns in the way that we make meaning um, that are shared and really being clear about, about what we mean when we, say, when we talk about sharedness of models. And so what are the sort of implications for communicators to have this knowledge? Like, so what would they do with this information? They come to frameworks, they learn about these cultural models, and then what, what do they do with that? So if you know that individualism is some, it's going to be a trap for you. If you are wanting to advocate uh, for more bike lanes okay. in your community, you want to make a change to the system that you, you know, because you know in other communities that it will lead to behaviors that um, make people more healthy. Um, if you start with the idea that, you know, you need to take responsibility for your health and bike more, and the way that you can bike more is if we have more bike lanes. Well, you've just triggered individualism. And so the idea that you know, how the community is structured is going to determine whether or not that person bikes kind of goes away. It's did okay. that person. So thinking about the structure of your story, right? So instead of this person needs to get up and bike in the morning, um, you could tell a story about what bike lanes look like, how difficult it is to bike when there, there aren't good systems for bikers. Uh, you know, so you could start mm -hmm. with how your story is about how the environment is, is shaping whatever decisions people are making. And so you're, you're starting at a sort of a, a wider place, uh, a wider place, not whiter place. <laughs> um, 
and, and you're really trying to tell the story of how systems can act on individuals and, and shape what they what they can do. I mean, I think just it, what, what's really exciting is that when we're able to do this work and sort of map that really complex ecosystem of the models people are using, um, it's just really exciting to share that with the people we're working with and to have people just have the moment of, of recognition of, of how beautifully complex human cognition is. I think sometimes we, all of us get stuck in the idea that people think this way or they are this type of person or this is their worldview when rather it is, it is so context dependent. It is so variable. It is, um, it's patterned, um, but just infinitely complex that you can have people drawing on two models that seem not internally coherent or consistent, but that's what they're using to make meaning of something in front of them. That's what we all do. Um, it's just exciting um, to have people, I think, think really deeply about human cognition. My name is Nat Kendall Taylor. I am an anthropologist by training, and and in my training and career thus far, I've specialized in a a type of anthropology, uh, which Brad, you and I share, uh, called psychological anthropology. So, can you can you introduce yourself? Yes, I am uh, Brad Shore. I am a cultural anthropologist, uh, professor of anthropology at Emory University where I have been for about 36 years. And I was trained originally at University of Chicago in what was known as symbolic anthropology. Um, it was in a way the heyday of that particular approach to the study of culture through symbols and meanings. And I was transitioned into anthropology by uh, a very powerful experience of culture, which confirmed a long-time interest in cultural differences that I had. And that, that, ex that experience was the Peace Corps, where I spent two years in Western Samoa uh, in the South Pacific. We were the first Peace Corps group in that part of the world. And the process by which Samoans came to begin to understand us and we understood them we were at the very at the forefront of that. Today, Peace Corps volunteers go into a situation where the uh, there are models of how to interact with Westerners and Samoans that have been fairly long developed. But back then, it was a struggle, and that struggle left me with a real interest in culture, what it was, and how it influenced thinking and behavior. Uh, and so I went into anthropology. So I'm already jumping out of order in terms of the questions, but could you talk a little bit about, you can either do this personally or in terms of the discipline more generally, but about that transition from symbolic anthropology to um, psychological anthropology and cultural models theory in particular? That's right. I, I uh, wouldn't say that I changed uh, from symbolic anthropology to to cognitive anthropology or psychological, but rather that I found a way to integrate the interesting elements of 
what I had studied in symbolic anthropology, culture as a system of symbols and complex symbols that shaped the worldview or the meaning uh, of people who, who use them. And the translation of the way in which culture was orchestrated in the world into experienced systems of understanding in people was a problem. And that problem actually, in a way, exploded into anthropology just after I finished my degree at the end of the 1970s and became known as the problem of agency versus structure, um, the tension between looking at culture as people actively acting in the world, using their cultural understandings as tools, but not simply reacting or reflecting those tools. They weren't passive. And um, this became a major critique of anthropology that continued to the it still continues today, and led anthropologists to begin to reject the concept of culture itself as too global, it, too homogeneous, um, not concerned with issues of power, not concerned with the various ways in which culture shaped diverse discourses, the whole concept of culture as discourses. And I uh, took the, these critiques seriously, I, I, uh, but to me, they did not um, imply that we reject the concept of culture as shaping human experience. And my experience of Samoa was too strong for that. And so the, the cultural models theory was uh, my way, I, I sort of started looking around for traditions of, an, uh, of understanding of symbols and behavior that would be able to integrate what I thought of as the doubleness of culture. Culture is in the world as orchestrated structures. Um, the world is culturally shaped by people and, and babies are born into a culturally orchestrated world. So that's the external aspect of culture. But that culture also is simultaneously embodied in what we call mental models or in the culture in the mind. So that that's that's what I did. And I remember that I told my advisor, David Schneider, I asked him what the theory of mind was that anthropologists used in, in culture theory. And he said, theory of mind? He said, we don't have any such thing. I said, well, I am going to work on that and write a book on it. He said, you'll never do it. And You did it. I, <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's always, I always thought it was so interesting um, how close of a connection you had with, I guess, what gets called cultural psychology, kind of uh, right. Jerome Bruner and the relationship that you've, uh, that, that you had with him. And, and something that I've always been kind of just drawn to in the work that you do and the way that you think is that you are less purely, and I take this as a compliment, less purely anthropological Right. And you are thinking than many anthropologists right. that I know. So could you just talk a little bit more about some of the other disciplines or domains or practices? Yeah, I mean, to me, the human being, including the human mind and the nervous system, is not divided into departments. <laughs> Only universities are divided into departments. And so if you're asking big questions, questions about meaning, et cetera, it's not surprising that we might find ourselves attracted to and drawing on various traditions. 
Um, I've always been something of a what I would hope would be seen as a, a serious dilettante in the sense that I've never been afraid if I if I discover that somebody is working on a problem from a different angle or a different discipline than my own, uh, I'm not, a, I don't, I don't respect disciplinary boundaries in that way. I'll just go start reading them. And I think that can confuse people because academics tend to be sometimes wedded to understanding things within a single tradition. But if you think about it, Understanding the human mind cannot be simply anthropological. That's ridiculous. And number two, uh, the the study of culture by definition means the study of straddling different understanding systems, right? In in anthropology, those are known as cultures, right? And we're trained to sort of learn by straddling and absorbing a kind of wisdom and knowledge from a variety of different cultural sources, each culture could be viewed in a way as a theory of the world, a theory of how the world works. Um, And we're not just collecting these theories or reading about them or writing about them in order to increase the size of the, 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 the holdings in the library. I mean, that's one purpose. But the other purpose is that there's some assumption that there's something to be gained by opening your mind, that activity of opening the mind to a momentary confusion, which is what I had in Samoa. And then number two, sort of stepping into that other world and after a while saying, oh, now I understand that world. I understand, and you see it oppositionally. There's American culture, and then there's Samoan culture. So that's the oppositional moment. And the third moment is when you begin to discover the larger discourse that unites the cultures. And that's the, that's the mind and the way the mind operates. And so I, for me, uh, I think there's no way to approach, if you're going to ask the kinds of questions that we ask and that you're asking at frameworks. You can't st- stick with a single discipline. It's not. It's not possible, really. So here's a a, a question that I've. Um, I don't know if I've ever asked you this in all of the years that we've yeah. we've known each other. But um, frameworks is a communications uh, research nonprofit, right? So we do research to try to help uh, nonprofit communicators do a better job of. Um, of kind of moving their issues. And at the core of our work is cultural models theory, right? right? The idea that you can, uh, that it's a value to understand how people share ways of thinking about issues and, and the way that those shared patterns of thinking affect their social, political, individual behaviors, attitudes, um, emotions. Uh, and so we have managed to take, uh, you know, largely in academic theory, and build it into a very applied function and place. And so my question is, um, did you ever imagine that uh, cultural models theory would be used in the way that frameworks has and is using it? No, I, to be honest, no. I, I, uh, I was shocked and delighted 
when, and I discovered this when I kind of tracked you down <laughs> year when after you you graduated from graduate school, I mean, where did you end up and found that you were at this place called Frameworks and I began to sort of become interested in it. But I am not by, I, to be honest, I'm not by temperament an applied anthropologist. Um, and I've never thought of myself as sort of working on applied anthropology, but I did always think that the, the smartest and best theoretical thinking in, in, in anthropology in any field could also be the most useful and applied. It's because it really was powerful. A powerful idea can, can be applied. And of course, something as generic as uh, thinking through culture, thinking through cultural models is so fundamental an approach to the to anthropology that um, uh, stepping back now it doesn't surprise me that it has been useful, but it's not something I ever anticipated. I imagine that you have thoughts when you see us taking this theory and using it in this work, which is different than how you intended it. How does that like? What does that do for you? What does that? What does that make you think about? I think that when you're working in uh, a, a theoretical tradition, as in my case, that I was not actually brought up in, I discovered it, you know, after I got out of school and sort of self-trained in it and all that, you always have some, and, and to be honest, it's not the biggest field in cultural anthropology. You know, it's, there's a, there's a number of us and some very smart people but um, it's there's other ways of approaching culture, and so um, you always begin to sort of wonder whether or not what you're doing is real, whether you've made this all up. Right? It seems to be powerful, and and the fact that I've observed it and was able to use cultural models theory in making sense of the research that I was doing in Samoa in the United States was was good, but it never, it, it, it left me always wondering whether or not it was as powerful a theory as I thought it was. And so every time I see these, and I read a report, a research report from frameworks about the effects of these interviews and the way people talk about things, my feeling is, wow, it was right. <laughs> no kidding. They people. I mean, in other words, there's a little bit of a surprise <laughs> that it was as powerful as it was. Um, and then I stop back and say, "But of course, it's it's that way. What other way could it be? People think through models, but you know, it, it's it's been it's validated. I mean, we each get a big shot in academia at deciding what we're going to focus our time on. And um, now that I'm retiring, I don't want to sort of have to conclude that I wasted my time on a theoretical tradition that's not very productive or powerful. And so Frameworks keeps reminding me how powerful it is and how useful it is. And so it's very gratifying in that way. Um, so I, I just wanted to end by, by first of all, very sincerely uh, and, uh, and deeply thanking you for participating in, in this uh, podcast, Frames of Mind, this episode of the podcast. Uh, and to thank you for the, the the work that you've done, and particularly for what you've given us in in the form of this theory of cultural models, which we have um, 
um, hopefully made you proud in our application of and continue to use as a core feature of our work. And I would just tell um, anyone who's listening, if you're interested in reading more about Brad's work, I would highly recommend uh, his, I think we arrived on the date being 1996, a uh, volume called Culture and Mind, Cognition, Culture, and the Problem of Meaning. And there is a chapter, it's my favorite chapter in the book, in which Brad uh, kind of takes on that analysis of the American game of baseball from a cultural models perspective, which I um, is the is is one of the, the the first readings that I always recommend to people who are interested in cultural models and really understanding what they are, but also their their impact, their effect, and how they shape um, how we think and and what we do. So thank you very much, Brad. Now we know how culture informs public thinking on social issues, but how do we move people to care? Find out in the next episode of Frames of Mind. But in the meantime, if you're curious about what models exist for your issue, visit our research page at frameworksinstitute.org. And if you want to practice these tools in your own communications, check out Frameworks Academy, our online learning series. Frames of Mind is produced by April Callen and recorded, edited, and co-produced by Cameron Lopez. Thank you to our guests, fellow staff, and of course our partners over the last 20 years who've made this work possible. Frame on.